Good evening. <clears throat> Tonight we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and chapter 4. And as you're turning there, the name of our uh, lesson tonight is Beautiful in His Time. And we're going to look at the first 15 verses. And uh, if tonight's the first night you joined us, <clears throat> let me remind you that Ecclesiastes is a very unique book in the Old Testament. It's a book about life. <clears throat> it's not a book about life how we see it today, but it's a book about life under the sun. It's a book written by the wisest man who ever lived and also the wealthiest man. A book that which <clears throat> Solomon looks back over his life and he chronicles the experiments of his life to find meaning. Solomon tried wealth, he tried wisdom, he tried work, he tried wild living. And at the end of it, Solomon came up with this conclusion. It's all emptiness and it's all vanity. But now we come to a third chapter, and the third chapter poses a much different problem than we, <clears throat> for us than we experienced so far. In fact, one writer that I read, he called the entire writing the book of Ecclesiastes the problem with God. We have looked at the problem in the first two chapters, the problem without God, but there is a problem with God. And the problem with God is, is summarizing an argument that is put forward in the book by Rabbi Harold Kushner some years ago. And in his book, <clears throat> Kushner, he relates the story about a tragedy of his own son. And as a religious man, he tries to sort out in his mind why God would allow something so terrible to happen to his boy. And he comes up with two theses as why this could, why this could be true. First of all, it's possible that God is almighty. He is loving, but He's not all-powerful. He's loving. He wanted to do something about His Son, but He didn't have the power to prevent it. Or He said the other alternative is He's powerful, but He's not loving. He had the ability to do something to keep something from happening to His Son, but He just didn't, just didn't prevent it from happening. He don't care. And Kushner wrestled this in person, and he came up with the conclusion that, from his perspective, that God is loving, but He's not powerful. God cares deeply about us, but He basically created the world and He wound it up and he, he set it loose on its own entity without any intervention from God or from the outside. So in His mind, God is, is not in control. God is not sovereign. God has nothing to do with our everyday situation in your life or in mine. And the Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, he would not agree with this assessment. Solomon helps us understand Almighty God is in control, He is sovereign. He is on the throne, and nothing happens outside of His purpose. But having said all that, there's still some issues. So we're going to look at the third chapter, and we're going to see some things that Solomon does in his reasoning through these questions. Why are things in life not better than they are? If I'm a follower of Christ, <clears throat> why do I have to go through winter? Why can't I just experience spring and summer? Why doesn't God treat me better because I'm one of His? As Solomon begins to unravel these questions in the third chapter, he does so by giving us, first, some impressions about life. Then the first eight verses, Solomon gives us some interesting dialogue about life in general. And this is a very interesting passage because it contains 14 phrases that are like, it's actually 28 phrases that are like, 14 of those are negative and 14 of them are positive. And these statements are about life as they fall into three separate categories. 
The first group of statements are about humanity and our body. The second group is about our soul. And the third group is about our spirit. And Solomon is reason about life. He has some, <clears throat> some impressions about life and how life works as it relates to our body, to our soul, and to our spirit, which gives us the makeup of a man. But again, it's the first of all reminding us that life is about time. And in fact, the word time is found 20... <clears throat> Excuse me. In fact, the word that is time is found in this passage of scripture over twenty-nine times, and that doesn't reflect. That doesn't include other words that reflect time, like season, eternity, forever. So Solomon's talking here how you and I who follow God look at life, and here's an impression. <clears throat> here's his impression. If you would look at uh, Ecclesiastes three uh, verse two, there's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. So first of all, Solomon talks about the boundaries of life. <clears throat> and he says there is a time to be born and a time to die. God knows the time of her birth and He knows the time of her death. Life runs through seasons. He says there is a time to plant and a time for you to harvest. And he's talking about our food supply here. And, and God has set boundaries for the harvest. We know that we don't plant in the wintertime or when it's cold. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. Now that, that, that sounds a little strange, but if you ever think about it, the fact that your body's in the process of dying in many respects from the time that we're born, it is not meant to be more, but scientists tell us that every seven years our bodies change. All the cells in our body replenish replenish yourself every seven years, so you're a different person now than you are seven years ago. You're different, but you're the same. And there's a time when you're born, a time when you die. He goes on to say in verse 3, a time to break down and a time to build up. We build up in our youth, and we break down in our age. Someone said that happens when you, this happens when you start breaking down, that um, time gets smaller and smaller, Steps start getting higher and higher. <clears throat> and people start talking lower and lower. But what Solomon is saying that, that we need to understand is when it comes to our bodies, there's a season for every part of life. And here's what he wants us to understand. God is involved in all of it. God is not, as Rabbi Kushner said, outside the experience of life. He is not loving but not powerful. He is all-powerful. He's loving and because we cannot comprehend it, that doesn't make it not true. He's God, we're not. So he goes on now and he begins to reason about the time, <coughs> how time affects the soul. He said there's a time to weep and a time, <coughs> and a time to laugh. Look at verse 4. There's a time, to, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. The soul is a seed of our emotion. Solomon reminds us that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Life is made of all kinds of emotions. <clears throat> and what Solomon wants us to know is that, that as God is just not in the good things, He's a part of all things. Now we may not accept that in our minds, so Solomon continues on the third grouping, <clears throat> and he calls this how time affects our spirit. Look at verse 6. 
A time to gain, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. Sometimes we gain some, sometimes we lose some. Sometimes we lose money. Sometimes we gain weight. Sometimes we lose hair. There's a time when we speak and a time when we need to keep our mouth shut. There's a time for love and there's a time to hate. We may say, well, well, how can you hate? Jesus hated. He hated sin. He hated destruction. He hated corruption. We need to learn how to hate that which is evil without hating the people that are evil. We should hate abortion, but we should not hate those that have abortions or perform abortions. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. That's what Jesus did. What Solomon is teaching us is that all, as life unfolds, both birth and death, joys and sorrows, the choir and the losing, the speaking up and being silent, the war and peace, God is sovereign. God is in control of everything that happens. You may not like that. We may not be able to fully explain that. But it's true, and Solomon recognized it. God is in control. Listen to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 37. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe will be and proceed? Or what about Ephesians 1.11? In him also we have attained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him whose works are according to the counsel of the will. How much of what goes on in the world is under the control of Almighty God? Whether we like it or not, it's everything. God is in charge. If you do not believe that, <clears throat> you don't have a God that's worth worshiping. If God is not in charge, He, can't, he cannot be God. Sometimes people come, come along and say, well, my God would never allow that. You know why? Because their God don't exist. The God of the Bible, <clears throat> God who does allow good and evil is not the God of the Bible. Does God promise evil or promote evil? No. But His permissive ways and wills allows it. All of these things are part of the plan that God has for life. He does not edit out difficult things that we can go sailing through life without challenges. One day, everything that is broken. It's going to be fixed. And everything that is sick is going to be made well. And every disease is going to be eliminated forever. But not yet. We're living in between the cross and the crown. And in, in that in-between time, we deal with life as it really is. And all the emotions we have discussed so far. But what Solomon is saying is life is made up of a lot of seasons. Spring, summer, fall, and winter. All of it is part of God's ultimate plan for His people. So Solomon, he now files his report about some insights about God. And once again, we ask this tough question. And this is the third time he's asked this question, and, and we're not even through chapter 3 yet. And is what profit, in verse 9, what profit has the worker from that in which he labors? What do we have left over, pretty much is what he's saying. Is there meaning in all the polarization of life that fills the first eight verses? Where is the meaning of all this? If we look at verse 10.
I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. And basically what he's saying is that man is so busy living that life that he will not understand the meaning of life unless he just stops, slows down, and ponders it. And unless he begins to think about it, he will not realize that God is good and God's plan is good. So here's the first insight that Solomon has about God. A, his plan is good. Verse 11, here's what it says. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything that happens in our life has a purpose. God makes it beautiful in His time. And this is the Old Testament counterpart to uh, Romans 8.28. And we know that all things work together for good of those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. <clears throat> now here's the problem. We have no problem with this particular perspective as long as life is, it, is, it refers to the good things that happen to us. You know, you may be praying and, uh, to get married, and um, you're in this crowded room, and you look across this room, and you see this guy, and all of a sudden, you lock eyes, and, oh, it was perfect. It was beautiful in his time. But you live with him for 10 years, and you realize that it's not so beautiful anymore. And, but that's still that's a part of God's plan, and God's plan is good. We have no problem with this observation but we don't understand that his plan also includes the hard times. Cancer can be part of his plan. Does God give people cancer? Nobody allows it. And his plan is good. I read this excerpt from a book of, by Malcolm Margaret called The 20th Century Testimony. And I quote, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on my experiences at this time and seem especially dislocating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything <clears throat> that has truly enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or obtained. In other words, if it were ever possible to eliminate <clears throat> affliction from earthly existence by some drug or some medical mumbo-jumbo, the result would not make life delectable, but would make life too banal too trivial to be endurable. This is the course of what the cross signifies. It is the cross more than anything else that has called me to follow Christ. What is Margaret saying? If you could look back on your life and you take everything out that was painful, everything out that was a challenge, everything that was not positive, <clears throat> you would look back at your life and say, that was so vanilla. That life was not even worth living. So what you have to understand is that God's plan is good, everything it allows in your life. Some of you say, well, what about the Holocaust? What about 9-11? What about all these things that's happening throughout history? I can't answer those questions. I don't know. But I know when you're able to look at all that has happened in life from an eternity's perspective, you will see that Almighty God is in charge. And He puts it together, and His, and his plan is good. If you don't accept that, you're going to struggle with life and the difficult things that you face. So let's go on down to B. Not only is God's plan good, but His purpose is clear. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has put eternity in their hearts. What that means is God has, has something in their hearts that cannot be discovered through experiences of life. He has put eternity in their hearts that will always be a longing in us, something more than what we have experienced until we know God. And even after we know God, there's still that ache. 
The Bible says the whole creation is, is groaning, waiting for the day of redemption. And we cannot find the ultimate satisfaction in this life as followers of Christ because God has created us <clears throat> to only find perfect satisfaction in a personal relationship with Him. And that's going to be it when, when we're with Him in eternity, forever and forever. I read this excerpt by C.S. Lewis, and he put it this way, Our Heavenly Father provided many delightful <clears throat> ends for us along the journey, but He takes great care to see that we, don't mist- we do not mistake any of those for our home here. There's a lot of joy along the way for believers, but the ultimate joy isn't ours until we go home. C, so his plan is good and his purpose is clear, but his program is mysterious. Verse 11, except no one can find out that God has been... <coughs> excuse me. Except that no one can find out that God does from beginning to end. And we may ask why this happens. Why is this going on? Why does it happen this way? I don't know. But I know this, God's plan is good, His purpose is clear, but His program is mysterious. I'm not God, I cannot understand it. I try to figure it out, and so do you. And I wish God sometimes would be more forthcoming with all His answers, but sometimes He just don't answer us. And let me say this, God don't owe us an answer. Someday we will know, but right now, we're, as Paul wrote in the New Testament, we're looking through a glass darkly and we don't see clearly. So God's plan is good and His purpose is clear and His program is mysterious. And that brings us from insights of God to some instructions about living. And Solomon's going to give us three things that we need to do. His first instruction for living is don't forfeit enjoyment because of what you can't understand. Look at verse 12. I know that nothing is better for them to, <clears throat> than to rejoice and to do good in their lives. Here's what I believe Solomon's saying. You can spend all your life trying to figure out God, and you never will. You can't, you can't ever figure out what God allows, why God allows everything <clears throat> He allows, and you will never understand it. So why spend all your time locked up in that? You can't enjoy life with that. So don't let what you don't understand keep from enjoying what you can't enjoy. Go have a hamburger. Go to Guthrie's after church on Sunday. You'll probably bump into Sammy down there. I think a lot of Christians get locked up <clears throat> in what they don't understand. They miss the fact that Almighty God sent Jesus <clears throat> into the world to give us life and give us life more abundantly. We're to enjoy life. God has given us the life to enjoy. You get in discussion about a sovereign God and free will man, and you'll freak out. Because you'll never understand it. I'll never understand it. Secondly, don't forget to be thankful. For God's gift to you, notice in verse 13, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. Go to work and be glad. Sometimes we get caught up so much in what's wrong with our job that we're not thankful for the job that we have. People everywhere would give, would give thanks and be thankful for our job. One day we're going to die, but in the meantime, let's live. Don't go through life and not live. Be thankful for what God has done for us. Number three, don't fear life, fear God. I know whatever God does, it will be forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing can be taken from it. <clears throat> we say, well, I don't like God's plans for my life. Well, that's too bad. 
God doesn't have any red ink, and He doesn't, he doesn't have a, a delete button on His computer to erase it. Whatever God has determined, you can't take anything from it, you can't add anything to it. God does it, and men should fear before Him. You ask, what does that mean? It means the very fact you can't understand it is the reality that He is God. We say, well, I don't understand what you're doing, God. And He says, that's probably because, you're God, because I'm God and you're not. And my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. So what should we do when we feel those emotions? Get mad? Well, I don't think it's right. I don't know what God's doing. No, we realize that the probable mystery of Almighty God, and we fall down and we worship Him. Say, Lord, I don't know what's going on here, but I know You're God, and I worship You with all my heart. And You're in charge, and whatever's going on, it's okay with me. We'll get through this. And I know it's your will. I know you'll never leave me. So let's fear life. Let's not fear life. Let's fear God. See, it's the food wrappers, the cigarette butts, and the styrofoam cups to see if anything valuable was being smuggled out of the, out of the factory. He never found anything. Finally, one day, the guard could no longer stand it. He said to the man, Look, I know you're up to something every day. I check every last bit of trash in the wheelbarrow, and I never find anything worth stealing. It's driving me crazy. Tell you what I'll do. You tell me what you're up to, and I promise I won't report you. Man shrugged his shoulders and said, I'm stealing wheelbarrows. <laughs> How often we look at life like the security guard. We miss the most obvious because it's surrounded with the unimportant. Solomon, in his journal we call Ecclesiastes, is not going to let us do that. He's pointing out the obvious to us, and he's driving us to consider the important things in life. What we're learning in the book of Ecclesiastes is that meaning in life is an elusive target for most people. One brother can experience it while the other completely misses it. Just when we think we have arrived, we discover that we are not where we had hoped to be. So far, Solomon has taught us some things for sure. Number one, in the first two chapters, there's no real meaning in life without God. All that we attempt without him leaves us grasping for the wind. There is no profit. But he's also honest enough to remind us that even when we have God in our lives, there can be problems if we try to make him fit our own concepts about life and reality. Remember, his plan is good, his purpose is clear, but his program is mysterious. <laughs> now, as we continue in Solomon's journal, we are going to examine five areas that caused him to struggle. These five concerns are not buried in Solomon's culture, but they are just as up-to-date as our own world. As Solomon continues to make his observations about life, his honesty at some times is almost brutal. He just looks us right in the eye and says, this is the way it is. Four times in the section of Scripture that we're going to study today that begins with the 16th verse of the third chapter, Four times Solomon is going to say the phrase, I saw. You'll see it in chapter 3, verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun. 
Again in chapter 4 and verse 4, again I saw, he said. Verse 7, he says, then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. In 15 of chapter 4, he says, I saw all the living who walk under the sun. You can see what Solomon is doing is making observations about what he sees. He's looking at life and he's writing down what he sees. And he's trying to be honest about what he sees and how he responds to it. After he writes down what he sees, he begins to think about it. And if you go back through the text again, you'll discover some phrases that help you understand how he's internalizing what he sees. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I said in my heart. Uses that same phrase again in verse 18. In verse 22 of chapter 3, he says, so I perceive. So when I saw this, this is what I thought. In chapter 4, in verse 1, he says, then I returned and I considered. Solomon is observing, and then he's thinking. He's seeing things in life that he can't comprehend, but he doesn't stop there. He looks at it, he evaluates it honestly, and then he thinks about what it means. Now, there is a verse of Scripture clear at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes that I believe holds the key to understanding sections like this. It's Ecclesiastes 12, 11. Now, watch this. The words of the wise are like goads. Now, do you know what a goad is? If you study history, a goad is a, a, a kind of a long pole with what we would look at, like a nail in the end of it. And a shepherd or a sheep herder would use that to prod his, his creatures along to keep them together. If one was lagging behind, he would goad him. So, he, so notice he says, the words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like the well-driven nails given by one shepherd, capital S. This is kind of like a key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes, and here's what it says. You'll be reading along in this book, and Solomon will say something that's like a goad. I mean, it, it's like it really sticks you. you. You look at that, and you think, whoa, yes. But after he does that, in the same context, he'll give you some nails from God, and those nails will help you to understand the the problem that he presents. And in this passage today that we're going to look at quickly, he talks about five problems that all of us are very familiar with, things that, that bug us, things that we look at and they goad us and we think, why? But along the way, he's going to give us some nails from the shepherd to help us understand what's going on. Okay, are you with me? Now, here's the first goad, if you will. Here's the first problem, the problem of faulty justice. Notice beginning of verse 16, what Solomon saw, verse 16. He said, moreover, I saw under the sun in the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there, faulty justice. Solomon saw what you and I see every day on television and read about every day in our newspapers. Look up, the guilty go free, the innocent suffer. The wicked prosper in, the, in their sin and the righteous suffer in their obedience. People are set free because they have money to buy their way out of trouble. And some poor guy who just happens to be in the wrong place at the right time gets sent to jail for something he didn't do. If God is good, where's all the justice? That's a goad, isn't it? And that sometimes it drives you crazy. If the world's supposed to run right, why is there so much injustice in the world? People getting off when we all know they're guilty. People getting convicted when we know they're innocent. Why does that happen? Well, Solomon's got a few nails for us on this one. Here's what he said in verses 17 through 21. 
He says, let me try to sort this out for you with some wisdom that will help you understand how to deal with faulty justice. First of all, remember, judgment is coming. Verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. Solomon observes that there will be a time of judgment when justice will prevail. God's judgment will be according to the secrets of men's hearts, and there is no partiality with God. He has already scheduled the judgment, and every man will have his day in court. That's what Solomon wants us to know. Just because we don't see it happening now doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Ecclesiastes 8.6 says, Because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of man increases greatly. Sometimes people say, well, they got away with it, and they're going to get away with it. Oh, no, you don't ever get away with it. Listen to Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Just because you don't see the judgment coming right now, Solomon says, don't think there is no judgment. Yes, justice is upside down sometimes, but you don't see the whole picture unless you carry it clear out to the end when one day God's going to set it all straight. You got that? That's the first nail. Nail number two. Death is certain. Solomon is going to go on a little rabbit trail here that we'll have to follow quickly. He says in verses 18 through 21, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them as one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place and are all from the dust and all return to the dust. Now, I need to tell you before we go any further, this is a passage of Scripture the critics of the Bible just love. They love this passage. They love it because they think they understand what it means, but they don't. The nail that Solomon drives here into this whole matter of faulty justice is the inevitability of death. Now, watch carefully his reasoning. It may seem as if the rich and the powerful always have the upper hand when it comes to justice and equity. But remember, he says, they will all die exactly the same way that you do. In fact, he goes out of his way to say that man, as far as his physical being is concerned, dies in the very same way as an animal dies. In two ways, we are like the animals. We die as they do. Our bodies return to dust as theirs do. Now, this is not saying, as some critics of the Bible would have us believe, that we die and that's the end. Solomon's talking here about our physical bodies. When we die, what happens? Our bodies go in the ground. They return to the dust. Our spirit and our soul goes to heaven. Animals don't have a soul, I'm sorry to tell you. When they die, it's over. As far as man is concerned, don't sit back and think somebody got away with something and that they're not going to be judged because judgment is coming and death is certain and you're going to die just like anyone else. We all are even when it comes to that subject. Uh, last I knew, the percentages were 100%. Everybody dies, right? Everybody. The rich, the powerful, the poor, the ones who oppress and the ones who are oppressed. Solomon says it's all even at the grave. But he does not say that we die as dogs. For he goes on in verse 21 to say, Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which go upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth. See the difference? The spirit 
of a man goes upward. In fact, later on in the book, Solomon makes that very clear. He understands what's going on here. If you look at Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 7, he says this, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. That's what happens when we die. Our bodies go in the grave, our spirit goes to God. Solomon understands that, so he's not teaching here that men are just higher forms of animals and that we all die and we go to the grave. That's what the critics would like to say this says. It doesn't say that. So then Solomon adds the third nail. He says, judgment is coming, death is certain, and now the third nail is in verse 22. 22, he says, life continues. Now he says, so you see some justice out there that isn't right. Don't mess up your whole life because of that. Don't walk around saying, well, it's not worth living because look at this, this is wrong, that's wrong. No, he says, just remember, everybody's gonna be judged. Everybody's gonna die. So what do you do between now and the judgment? Notice verse 22. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his heritage. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Once again, we are reminded, friends, that life continues in spite of our questions, in spite of the inequities, and in spite of all the stuff we don't understand. We may not be able to resolve all the conflicts, but while we wait for the resolution, we should rejoice in our own works and leave the future up to God. Can I get a witness? Amen. A poet put it this way, God holds the key of all unknown, and I am glad. If other hands should hold the key, or if he trusted it to me, I might be sad. I cannot read his future plans, but this I know. I have the smiling of his face and all the refuge of his grace while here below. Amen. I've got the smiling of his face and all the refuge of his grace while I'm trying to figure out how to get from the injustice I just saw to the ultimate resolution that's going to come someday. The problem of faulty justice. Now notice the second goad that Solomon brings up is in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. The problem of fierce oppression. Then I returned and I considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of the oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still alive. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Now, this is a tough goad. Listen to this. Solomon now records what he saw when he observed the oppression of the world. Here he is talking about the weak and the helpless of the world who are victimized by society, who have no hope of anything ever being different for them. Solomon speaks of their tears, and twice he observes that they have no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors there is power, but who do the oppressed ever turn to? Simon Weisenthal wrote a book about his examination of the Nazi concentration camps. And in one part in his book, he explains why he stopped believing in God the way he used to believe in God. He said he was in a camp where a Nazi commander brought two Jews and put them back to back, shackling their arms in handcuffs so that their heads were back to back. Then he took his revolver, he put it in the mouth of the one man and he shot it. It killed the man, and it killed the man behind him. And he turned to his corporals, and he said, I told you, you're wasting too many bullets. You can kill two with one. And Weisenthal said, when I saw the oppression and the wickedness and the injustice of that, 
I couldn't comprehend it, and I turned from God. And if you don't understand the Word of God and the sovereignty of God and the purposes of God, you cannot blame that man, nor do you. Solomon's conclusion about the oppressed is that they would have been better off if they had never been born. As he looked at the awfulness of life, the work of evil done under the sun is so great, he said, that one would choose not to be born if it was such a choice that he could have. This was the sentiment that Job had. You remember how Job faced the problems in his life when he lost all of his family? You remember the oppression of Job? One day he was sitting on top of, he was the catbird on the mountain, and the next day he had lost everything, all of his wealth, all of his possessions, all of his cattle, all of his family. The only one that was left to him was his wife, and she proved to be quite a liability later on. And Job, in the midst of it all, said, May the day perish that I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? So what do you say to someone like that? That's the question Solomon raises. You know what? Preachers never raise questions like that. We try to stay away from them. We, those are the hard things about the, the gospel, the hard things about Christianity. What do you say to people who are oppressed? Well, you know what we've learned? Sometimes it's all right to say we don't know. We don't understand. Our minds are so finite, we can't comprehend the corporate purposes of God in his world. But there is an interesting thought that I want to share with you, though Solomon does not share it here. When David was dealing with the same issue in one of the Psalms, Psalm 73, talking about why the wicked prosper, he comes to this conclusion. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood. If you try to understand the purposes in this world using your own wisdom, your own ways of thinking things through, you're going to see a lot of things that you can't, you can't merge. You can't get them to come into sync. And some things you will never be able to resolve. One thing you must remember, that in the things you can't resolve, you must continue to trust God, knowing that someday the resolution will come, even though it is not there now. Solomon said, I saw the oppressed, and I want you to know what I saw. There's a lot of things in this life that are bad, a lot of things that are hard and evil. We don't do ourselves any favors by turning our back and acting like they're not there. Pollyanna is not a good prescription for life. You face the issues, and then sometimes you step back and say, Lord God, I don't comprehend this. I don't know why all of this suffering is going on. I don't know why people in these countries like in Iraq and all of these other places, why there's so much evil. But I know this. It wasn't here before the Garden of Eden, and it's come through humanity, through our own selfishness and sin. God is not responsible and that's all we can say. Notice the third goad, the problem of financial rivalry. Here's one that's very contemporary, and all you guys are sitting out here from the corporate world, you'll comprehend this immediately. Verses 4 through 6, the problem of financial rivalry. Now watch this. He said, And I saw that for all toil and every skillful work a man is envied by his neighbor. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon could have been filing an article for the USA Today or the Wall Street Journal. He summarizes the driving motivation in today's workplace. Men do not work so that they can have things or for comfort. They work so that they can be the envy of their neighbors. 
They want the car not because it's better, but because everybody will say, whoa, look at that car. <laughs> They're all excited about being one step ahead of everybody else that's around them. They're in this financial rivalry, this competition. Newsweek magazine carried an article about what drives people in Washington, D.C. Listen to this. Ambition is the raving and insatiable beast that most often demands to be fed in this town. The setting is less likely to be some posh restaurant or glitzy nightclub than a wholly unremarkable glass office building or an inner sanctum somewhere in the federal complex. The reward in the transaction is frequently not currency at all, but power, perks, and ego massage. For this, the whole conglomeration of psychological payoffs, there are people who will sell almost anything, including their self-respect if they have any, and they will also give up the well-being of thousands to get to their goal. Elliot Richardson, the attorney general who resigned rather than dismiss special prosecutor Archibald Cox at President Nixon's request, wrote this about the late President Richard Nixon. He said, Richard Nixon's great weakness was the approach to life that came out of his battle to achieve station, influence, power, all the things he felt that he had not been accorded as a youth. He had an insecurity, an insecurity that eventually propelled him to the presidency by his aggression, his suspicion, his vindictiveness, his retaliation, and so forth. He viewed every opponent as an enemy, and he never understood when he had won. An unhealthy craving for power, influence, and all the trimmings leave men in a quiet life of desperation. So some people look at that and they say, well, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do that. So notice Solomon says some of them take the other extreme. The fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Here's what Solomon is saying. Some people look at this craving after ambition and they say, whoa, that's awful. That's, and in the 1960s and the 1970s, a whole generation dropped out. Do you remember? Some of you were a part of that. You became hippies flower children. You, you gave everything you had away and you went and lived in a commune. And Solomon says, the fool folds his hands and consumes his own flesh. Some people saw this runaway ambition for what it was back in the 60s. They decided the answer was to drop out. But Solomon observes that this too is the wrong answer. The wrong answer is not to be driven to get more than anybody else has or to drop out of life. He describes what happens when we respond to ambition by dropping out. We end up consuming our own lives. Our resources are gone. Our self-respect is gone. Drugs consume our ability to think, and we, we end up sleeping on the streets and begging for food. We consume our own lives. No, Solomon says there's a better way to this, and here's the nail. Notice verse 6. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. What's he talking about? Get a little balance in your life. You don't have to have it all, but you got to have some of it. You don't have to be at the top level on the 25th floor sitting in the CEO's office, but you don't want to be on the street either. Get a little balance. I got to tell you, I read, I read a little book sometimes in my devotional called Daily Light. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's written, written by uh, Richard Baxter years ago. Bagster, actually, B-A-G-S-T-E-R. And uh, Billy Graham's daughter took that and kind of updated it and put it in a new little book so that there's a reading for the morning and one for the evening. Let me tell you what it is. It's really a neat little thing because what I like to think of it is it's like, it's like uh, Starbucks coffee of the Bible. Because... <laughs> 
It's all the scriptures about different themes distilled into one reading, and it's so cool. If you want a real strong shot of the Word of God in the morning, get daily light and just read that thing. What I do is I write it out. And recently I got onto this thing, and I shared this with you once before in a sermon, where instead of just writing it out, I used it to write a prayer. And I took all the scriptures and reversed them around so that I was saying them to God. Well, believe it or not, this week I'm reading, and we're talking about this whole matter of financial pressure and rivalry and all that. And so I'm going to read to you what I wrote in my journal. This is my prayer from the Daily Light, the Starbucks coffee of the Bible. Here we go. Lord, I ask that you give me neither poverty nor riches. Please feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who are you, Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God, give me this day my daily bread. Lord, help me not to worry about my life, what I will eat or what I will drink, nor about my body, what I will put on. Isn't my life more than food and my body more than clothing? So, Lord Jesus, let my conduct be without covetousness. Help me to be content with such things as I have. For you yourself have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wow, it just brought me right out of my chair. That's it, isn't it? If you get on the tram to get the most before anybody else does, you will ruin your life. If you short-circuit your ambition, you will ruin your life. But if you pray that prayer, your life will be worth living. Proverbs 15, 16 says, Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with trouble. <laughs> Proverbs 16, 8 says, Better is a little with righteousness than vast revenues without justice. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. So we've looked at the problem of faulty justice and fierce oppression and financial rivalry. Now let me give you the fourth one. The problem of fractured relationships. Here Solomon talks about one of the things that happens to a person often when he's on his way up. Watch what he says. Then I returned, and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone without companion. He has neither son nor brother, yet there's no end to all of his labors, nor is his eye satisfied with riches. But he never asks, for whom do I toil and deprive myself of good? This also is vanity and a grave misfortune. Solomon observes people working their fingers to their bone, putting in hundreds of extra hours. He sees them depriving themselves of good. He sees them toiling without end. He watches as they continue to amass riches. And then he notes, they got no friends. They got no relatives. They got nobody. What do you do with all this money if you got nobody to share it with? I think that's where Charles Dickens got Scrooge. That's how he was, right? He went home every night to count his money. Nobody liked him. Everybody hated him. And Solomon observes that this kind of a lifestyle also is vanity. And he adds a new descriptive term. He says, this is grave misfortune. <laughs> what a shame. And he adds in verses 9 through 12 something that we often read in Ecclesiastes, one of the more famous passages. But have you ever seen it in the context? He says, don't sacrifice your relationships for riches. Relationships come first. Riches come second. Here's a little paradigm for you to remember. I'll say it about the church. Don't use the church to get people. Don't do that. The church is here to minister to people. 
We're to use the church to minister to people. Don't use your friends to get what you want. Use what you have to encourage your friends. But if you don't have any friends, what are you going to do? And so Solomon gives us four things about friends, about two being better than one. He says, two are better than one for working, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. There's a sense of joy that comes when you share the labors that you have with another, that your wife, your husband, your friends. It's also true that when you share the reward, the reward goes further. Two is better than one, according to Solomon. Number two, two is better than one for walking. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion, but woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Friends provide help in times of trouble. When difficulty comes, it's awful to be alone. You need somebody to encourage you, to be with you. Two are better than one for working. Two are better than one for walking. Two are better than one for warmth. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? Now, please don't take that out of context. This is a good word for marriage. <laughs> this is not for singles here. This is a marriage thing. And it has to go, it goes back to the culture of when people traveled across the Mideast and they would be traveling overnight in the mountains. They would get together and they would get as close as they could to share the warmth of one another. He says, two lie down together, they will keep warm, but how can one be warm alone? And then number four, two are better for one than one for watch care, verse 12. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon is simply saying that there's safety in numbers, and you don't want to be isolated by your drive. You want to build relationships in your life. Do you know any guys who trashed all the relationships because they're trying to get to the top for whatever purpose? You do, and I do, and women do that now, too. We're in this corporate culture where women are on the same track. They trash their relationships to get to the top, and when they get to the top, they look around, and it isn't what they thought it was going to be. It's the classic case of a guy climbing the corporate ladder only to discover when he gets to the top, the ladder's leaning against the wrong wall, <laughs> and he doesn't like what he sees. Finally, I have, to t I have to hurry on this and just touch on it. Number five, the problem of fickle popularity. Here, Solomon's looking at all these realities about life, faulty justice, fierce oppression, financial rivalry, fractured relationships. Now notice, fickle popularity, verses 13 to 16. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more, for he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. Now, there's a lot of conjecture about what this means and where it came from, but let me tell you what I think. And I wouldn't die for this, but this is what I think. I think Solomon is referring back in history to his own family as he talks about this fifth insanity. Listen. He says that a poor and wise youth is better than an old and foolish king who refuses to take instruction anymore. Could this be a reference to the first king in Israel who was selected by the people because he was a charismatic personality? Could this be Saul who started out with everything and ended up with nothing? Instead of consulting with God, he went to consult with the witch of Endor. Could the poor and wise youth be David who was chosen to replace him? His, he was born poor in the kingdom born as a shepherd boy with no reason to believe that he would ever one day ascend to royalty. Solomon says that a shepherd boy born in poverty is better choice for a king than an old and foolish man who refused to take counsel from anyone, including the Lord. Now the searcher adds one more piece to the puzzle, and I wish I had more time to develop it, but just hang with me. I think if you read it in the Scripture, you'll get it. Notice verses 15 and 16. He said, I saw all the living who walk under the sun, there were the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king, yet those who came afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also was vanity and grasping for the wind. Who was the second youth, now watch carefully, 
Who was the second youth who stood in David's place? Of course, it was Solomon himself. What does he say about the second youth who becomes king in place of his father? Listen carefully. He is crowned king amidst the fanfare of the people. There was no end of the people who praised Solomon and his reign, but Solomon reminds us that those who come after him will not celebrate his leadership nor him. And what is he saying? We're talking about fickle popularity. He's saying Saul came, he ruled, everybody thought he was the greatest thing, tall and handsome, but when he hit the dust and he was removed, David came, and everybody forgot about Saul. Remember the song they used to sing? David, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. That's a great song for David, but it's not real cool if you're Saul. What they're saying is, long live David. Who's Saul? Hmm. David came, and he was king. Came time for him to give up the throne. And Solomon, his son, was brought to the throne. And if you read the Old Testament story about his coronation, oh my goodness, it's amazing. I mean, it's the greatest thing in all the Bible. Solomon comes, and it says here, to the fanfare of many, yay, Solomon. And David's gone. And he says, one day Solomon will be forgotten. And after him, Rehoboam will be forgotten. Popularity is fickle. But what he's trying to say to us is, if you put your hope in being popular and being accorded the praise of men. It is a fickle thing. It's fleeting. It goes through your hands so quickly. Let me prove it. Who won the Oscars this year? Hmm. <laughs> Who won the Cy Young Award last year? Some of you, if you live in that world and you keep track of all of that, you can tell me. We have Specials on television that last for two hours, and we make all the awards, and within the year, we can't tell you one person who got one. Isn't that true? Now you're sitting around, you're your wives are whispering to their husbands who it is. I know <laughs> some of you are into this stuff, but, I, but don't mess up my illustration here. I want you to understand. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is that popularity is not a goal if you want to be happy. It's nice to be popular. It sure beats being unpopular but it's not the ultimate reality. And what Solomon is trying to get us to do is to come back to the reality of God. If you center your life on God, you'll get through. If you find anything else that takes his place, you're an idol worshiper, and God will not bless your life.